0: Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: There are two fundamental crises of progressive thinking. One is the lack of thinking about persuasion, but the second is the sort of conflating of what politicians are supposed to do and what movements are supposed to do.
2: Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Sean McElwee, who is the founder and executive director of Data for Progress, um, which describes itself as a multidisciplinary group of experts using state-of-the-art techniques in data science to support progressive activists and causes. What that means is McElwee sits atop an unbelievably massive trove of survey data and policy analysis through which he and his team are trying to fashion an agenda at the intersection of left and popular which is not always what everybody's trying to do as we talk about. And it's a good time to talk to him right now because this is a week the Democratic primary ended. Bernie Sanders endorsed Joe Biden. Barack Obama endorsed Joe Biden. The Democratic Party is uniting, but it is uniting around Joe Biden. So why didn't Bernie Sanders or, for that matter, Elizabeth Warren win? Why did the left lose when, frankly, the standard bearers of the moderates were weak. Joe Biden was not as strong in terms of early endorsements. Hillary Clinton not as strong in terms of fundraising as Bernie Sanders was at crucial moments uh, falling behind in the polls. How did he pull this one out? He did not have rapturous media coverage, whatever some people on the left believe. And Warren, who is strong in many ways, was never able to catch fire, at least not for more than a couple of weeks, in the ways that her backers expected she would, in the ways that many people hoped that she would. So what does the left need to learn from this election? Learn beyond frankly, blaming others, there can sometimes be a strain in the commentary where it feels like the left cannot fail, it can only be failed. But as somebody who cares about left policies, um, which I think I do, (laughs) you got to take more from it than that. There were strategic mistakes here, and they have to be learned and figured out. And McElwee has, using the data he has been able to amass and using the lessons of his own, like quite interesting career, I think, emerge with a set of lessons and a set of views on what were the mistakes here, what were the myths that got believed and that need to be gotten rid of both on the left and, frankly, everywhere in politics for a more effective representational politics to come forth and for progressives to win and be able to build power in the aftermath of what is, in the end, a defeat. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Sean McElwee. Sean McGalway, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I want to start where you started. What were the politics of the home you grew up in? I grew up in a pretty
1: conservative, evangelical family. Were you conservative and evangelical? I started off sort of in a more libertarian phase, you know, in the sort of like, group that I hung out with like if you wanted to rebel against conservatism like the way you didn't you did it wasn't like really liberalism it was sort of like more going on the libertarian route you know oh i don't i don't want to have the government telling what what to do when it comes to, like drugs and things like that but i think sort of like getting out into the world you start to realize like this idea that the the government is the problem the way libertarians think about the world it's like this connection between the government and business. And it's actually similar to the way that socialists think about the world. And the difference is that like libertarians think the government's the problem and and socialists think the businesses are the problem. And sort of the thing that really changed things for me was just seeing that this libertarian dream of like upward mobility was fundamentally false. When I was a senior in college, I did my senior thesis exploring what was like a really popular idea at that time, an economist named Miles Korak, who wrote about the Great Gatsby Curve. And I just came to be- to view, based on the reading of the evidence, that it was fundamentally inconsistent to have levels of income inequality that have in this country, and also have this sort of mythology of upward mobility. Can you tell people real quickly what the Great Gatsby Curve is? The Great Gatsby Curve was an idea that was very fresh, very hot. I feel like Blog would have covered it. We extensively. Did. <laughs> and it was like the idea that these nordic countries that had high levels of upward mobility also had like relatively low levels of income inequality and the more income inequality you had, the less upward mobility you had. And so I did a lot of writing at that time on that relationship and I came to believe that views of sort of upward mobility and meritocracy were fundamentally ideological constructs that were designed to justify unjustifiable levels of inequality in our society.
2: That would be a huge conversion for the Great Gatsby curve to trigger in anybody. And I'm somebody who loves the Great Gatsby curve. So what what else was happening? I mean, what, were there social relationships that pulled you out? Were there um, things you like ran into in the world that just seemed unfair to you? Because you made a pre- from libertarian to where you are now is a pretty big shift. And I, I feel there's probably
1: more heat at the center of it. Yeah, well, I mean, there's two things. One is like, I worked at Demos for three years. There's this view that it's like, oh, you know, Sean's like a, a neoliberal shit because he didn't like Bernie Sanders. And I, I like Bernie Sanders, but I've always been a sort of person who engaged with politics through institutions, you know? So I was at Demos for three years, and when I was at Demos, I saw you know, Elizabeth Warren taking on Antonio Weiss, right? And so like, for a lot of folks during the Obama years, it was like, actually, Elizabeth Warren, who's the real progressive left hero. So I just say that to say that I really don't think that my sort of fundamental views about politics have shifted that dramatically over the past several years since I sort of moved out of being uh, a libertarian. I mean, I was also very young when I was libertarian. I think like, no one should really be held to account for the views that they had before they completed college. But um,
2: given the views I had before I completed college, (laughs) I
1: I would like to see that enshrined in the
2: constitution.
1: (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it was for me, it was also going back from college. You know, I am relatively unique in the circles I run in now in that I have many family members who didn't attend college. Many people in the community that I grew up in didn't attend college. And I actually went back to where I grew up and I sort of was hanging out with people who didn't end up going to college, four year college, and ended up doing like two year degrees and things like that. And some of my friends were actually at that point basically raising their family members because of struggles with addictions in their households. And I was like, how can this person who's like raising their sister because they're parent is struggling with drug addiction, be meaningfully said to have the sort of same life opportunities as me or anyone else. And it sort of became clear how much of a an almost like sort of debater's fiction libertarian was. Like it is something that is basically invented in like a philosopher's mind and can't really be sort of reconciled with lived experience in this country in any meaningful way. It does always seem to me that's
2: actually the fundamental left-right difference. Do you look at the world around you and what you see is first and foremost circumstance and luck? I was lucky to be born here. I was lucky to have two parents who loved me. I was lucky to have this break, that break, not have that tragedy. Or do you see personal effort, responsibility, and in many cases, bad decisions? And Like that, I would like better research on what leads people to interpret the world one way or the other, because to me, I have almost never been able to see anything but luck, circumstance, and structure. And my belief in how much people credit or people deserve for what they have achieved is pretty low. Um, And others look at the same thing and see something completely opposite. And that is some kind of perceptual difference that comes before all of the empirical work we all layer on top of it, and I, I would like to understand it better. I don't know why. I don't know why that happens to people.
1: Yeah, and for me, what changed after that? So I sort of had like a very sort of like class centric understanding of inequality in this country that I think sort of came from really starting to understand this stuff through economic literature. When I went to Demos, it was the time when Miles Rappaport was sort of leaving the presidency of Demos and Heather McGee stepped up and she was president for my whole time there. And she really wanted the organization to sort of dedicate itself to understanding through all of our political issues, like the racial justice lens on it. And that led to like a really interesting data project that I did where we are looking at money in politics, thinking about money in politics, and we realized that the way we talk about money in politics is defined by data, right? Like the data the FEC makes available is like who has zero to $200 contributions, who is doing $200 contributions and more, but you don't actually know who those people are. You just know how much money they're giving. And so we did a project where we sort of matched these names from the FEC back to the voter file to analyze the sort of demographics of the donors, like the racial composition of donors. And it was sort of like really important for me understanding sort of like how the data we have limits the way we're thinking about politics and the arguments that we're making about politics, and then also sort of how we need to take our political understanding of political inequality and deepen that with the sort of like analysis of how sort of racial justice affects the issues that we're working on which at the time was for me both sort of democracy issues, which were money and politics and voting rights.
2: So I think it'd be easy to be listening to this if you don't have a lot of Sean McElwee background and think, ah, Ezra's got another sort of lame chill wonk here on the program (laughs) who thinks about politics by linking data files to each other and wondering about great Gatsby curves. And we published you at Vox a little bit in those years and and you wrote some great pieces from there. But you got a lot of attention initially for a very confrontational Twitter-centric form of politics. I mean, you got very known for forcing the idea of abolishing ICE, um, the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Division into the conversation a ton of democrats were really concerned about that because now they're being forced to take sides on this very unpopular policy and you're this real leader in this new generation of left-leaning online activists who had to kind of fuck the polls get attention through conflict approach and since then you've moved a lot to thinking seriously about polling and oppositional messaging more than almost anybody i talked to so can you walk
1: me through that story of your evolution sure I think it starts though with moving away from Demos, which, and I still like love Demos and I love think tanks, but I, I came to the view that sort of the think tank world wasn't connected enough to sort of day to day like electoral politics. Like people at think tanks aren't normally thinking like, Oh, you know, like what are the sort of gubernatorial races that cycle? Like, what are the interesting congressional races that we're watching? You know, they're much more sort of like thinking about policy and stuff like that. And I always found like policy interesting, but I found the sort of like rough and tumble of politics much more interesting. And so that's why Data for Progress started with a polling centric focus. And it, we also wanted to sort of like take into the ether ideas that weren't being tested. And our idea was sort of like, we could find ideas that were sort of outside of the beltway, but were popular and sort of inject them into the to the discourse. And when I was doing the abolish ICE activism, it was an issue that we pulled and like acknowledged it was unpopular. And so I think it's important to recognize that like when I was thinking about abolish ICE, it was a sort of like a, this is an idea that is like currently unpopular. It's sort of currently outside of the mainstream But we need to sort of stretch the mainstream of discourse to sort of change the way that people are thinking about immigration in a fundamental way and make sort of like more mainstream positions on immigration move to the left. So one thing that's different about Abolish ICE from some of the stuff you're seeing now is there was no belief from the beginning that this was an idea that was going to be popular. And so there was actually no attempt to get like sort of swing seat Democrats to embrace the idea. It was all sort of like, how do we use this idea, this issue to sort of upend left wing districts, right? So it was like AOC unseating Crowley. It was Ayanna Pressley unseating Mike Capuano. There was really no Democrats in swing districts who embraced the idea. And I didn't work at all to try to get mainstream Democrats to embrace the idea because it was about shifting over some window. And I think that that's one of the places where my current critique of left thinking comes, where you have to sort of pick, are you doing work around ideas that are sort of fundamentally outside of the discourse? And by definition, if things are sort of outside of the discourse, outside of the sort of current set of issues that people have opinions on, they're going to be more unpopular. And I think that that's what movements do. And that's what movements and activists should do is sort of stretch people's imagination. Or are we talking about sort of like politicians who fundamentally are people who work within public opinion and mostly don't try to shape public opinion, but try to sort of shape policy within public opinion? There are two fundamental crises of progressive thinking. One is the lack of thinking about persuasion, but the second is the sort of conflating of what politicians are supposed to do and what movements are supposed to do and thinking that like sort of every politician is supposed to sort of like immediately move to wherever movements and activists are without activists doing the sort of crucial step of making those ideas palatable to the general public.
2: I I want to back up to a concept in there that's come up on the show before, but I think is really important, which is the Overton window. As far as I can tell, this idea of the Overton window, which is just simply put, the range of what is considered mainstream discourse has become the dominant metaphor on the left, that if you can just move the Overton window in the conversation, then almost anything becomes possible. And the Tricky thing for me about it is, I think the Overton window idea is right to the extent that it applies, but that it doesn't necessarily apply in the way people want it to to legislating. So, I'd like you to talk a bit about theories of the Overton window and like what applications of it you think are, are good and valuable, and what applications of it you think are a mistake.
1: So, I think the Overton window is a super useful tool. But, you know, I was talking to Matt one time, and I was like, we spend all this time thinking about the Overton window, and at some point, we've got to walk through the Overton door which I think is actually a specific burden that is on the left that is not on the right. And the Overton window was originally a right-wing idea. It was originally a libertarian idea. And what's important to remember is that the Tea Party was fundamentally a nihilistic movement that didn't actually have to sort of figure out the place where you actually walk through the door and pass a law. And that allowed for them to sort of like be much more aggressive on this sort of like Overton window work. Whereas like Ocasio-Cortez, Presley, you know, Deb Holland, Tlaib, they all have sort of pieces of legislation that they would like to see become law. And so it's a much more nimble set of politics you have to execute to actually take an idea and make it law that the Tea Party didn't have to do because they didn't want to make laws. They just wanted to like sort of fuck shit up and you know, all they really had to do is break things. So I, I do think the overton window is useful, but I I think that we can not allow it to sort of become hegemonic in our thinking. And I think that it has been misapplied to prevent people from doing a lot of work. Where I think like on an issue like Medicare for All, it's like, yes, you want to have this golden, this this like sort of ideal. And but you have to do the work that like creates the steps there. Like you have to think about like would it be viable to start getting states to do full sort of Medicaid for all? Would that be an important step? Would surprise billing be a step? Would all payer rate selling be a step? How do we sort of create small wins in Congress that prove the case of Medicare for all politically? Instead of right now, what I have, what I worry about is we're actually seeing that the congressional day to day is making actual legislators more skeptical of Medicare for all. Because, you know, you see surprise billing killed. And if you're a Jamie Raskin, say, who's very sympathetic to the idea of Medicare for all, but sort of is a sort of mainstream legislator, you say, oh, wow, like if they can kill surprise billing, you know, wow, that Medicare for all idea seems bigger. Instead of doing the opposite, which is like take on pharmaceutical companies, beat them and show that it's actually possible to sort of get big healthcare reform. So that's what I think about now more and more is sort of what are the optimal places where industry is the weakest and most out of line what are the policies you can use to hit them hard to show the theory of your case and to build power for a sort of longer term more ambitious agenda
2: so this is where i want to go back to abolishing ice and sort of talk about what I do think is a, more of a change in your career and approach than you're giving it credit for. And I'm going to say some things you know, to get myself in trouble in the hopes that you'll say some things to get yourself in trouble, <laughs> because there seems to me to have been a split. Like In that period, the people who loved tweeting about and demanding and fighting for Abolish ICE combined folks who I think now, looking back, some of them wanted to change laws. And I think some of them don't. I think that there is a part of the left that is committed to doing the difficult transactional compromise-oriented work of politics. And there is a part of the left that a couple years ago looked like the same thing, but has clearly shown itself to not be, that is not trying even really to get people elected, like they would have liked Bernie Sanders to get elected, but they're not going to do the kinds of things that hurt to get there. Right? They're not gonna make the alliances, make the compromises, like not say some things they think are true about the world, not pick some fights they would like to pick in the world. And that there seems to me to be a bit of a split. And, and it's why your your invocation of the Tea Party there is nihilistic is interesting to me. I don't want to call as part of the left nihilistic, but I, I would call it anti-system. That there are folks here who want to take over the system with more left-leaning ideas. And there are folks here who I think just want to be in a fight and be pure and show that they're not part of something that is corrupt and transactional and dirtying and on the wrong side of history. And watching sort of people sort themselves into different sides of that has been One very interesting to me as somebody reporting on all this, but I think something that you've been very involved in and have been trying both through your organization and through your sort of presence socially and otherwise to draw pretty sharp distinctions on.
1: Yeah, I just think that the idea that I haven't always been in that latter bucket to be wrong. That's why I sort of evoked working at Demos before. Like I've always been in the sort of bucket of what is feasible at any given time, who do we have to make the deals with to get there? And I do think that like Twitter really incentivizes people to sort of like inflate the sort of impulse of the former and and sort of deflate the impulse of the latter. And that's why I think like Twitter has been a pretty destructive force for a lot of the left. But for the entirety of my career, like it's been for me thinking about like, how do we sort of get the most left-wing policy vision passed? And what I think the sort of key dividing line is that like sort of me and Ocasio-Cortez and Presley and other folks are on is our view is that the way you do this is you make the progressive movement in the left a sort of like functioning member in good standing of the Democratic Party. And you sort of like win battles within the sort of Democratic Party governing coalition that you pick strategically and you execute well.
2: Something you said there, I think is interesting, um, which is the incentives of being on Twitter. Uh, I I came up in this blogging moment. I was part of a cohort that was making critiques from the left of a lot of mainstream media organizations, and for that matter, of, of the Democratic Party, but we weren't coming up on Twitter. And a lot of us joined institutions. I mean, you've emphasized that you joined Demos, which is like a respected think tank institution. In fact, it was very connected to the institution I joined first, which is the American Prospect. Um, there was a period of time where they were in the same office, and I think Demos either owned or was a primary funder of the American Prospect. And so one thing I've really seen in a lot of the modern left is that a lot of folks have eschewed that particular path. Right? They're not going into mainstream media organizations or mainstream think tank organizations or doing things where they raise money for their think tank or their podcast, et cetera, on Patreon, and they do a lot of their advocacy on Twitter. And I'd be curious to hear you talk a bit about the different incentives of being a Twitter-based political entrepreneur, be that in the media or think tank or advocacy space and doing that work in a way where you have to be interacting with and dealing with uh, institutions that have other kinds of people and other kinds of incentives in them.
1: Yeah, I've always been, you know, an institutionalist thinker. I mean, I've like, there was a Columbia Journalism review piece on me where like, I'm just like complaining about the fact that we don't have enough left institutions. And I sort of complained about that for a while and then I created one. And, you know, now we've got like, you know, nine staffers and we're a real fucking thing which is, you know, really cool. And I'm super excited about that. And, you know, most of the people on my staff don't have big social media presences. Many of the organizations we work with don't have big social media presences. And I think that the incentives on social media are really to sort of like create an enemy and then sort of like sort of just keep bludgeoning them. And it's often to create a number of enemies, you know, because like that creates a lot of engagement. And the sort of incentives of Twitter actually, I think are actually a problem for modern progressive campaigns of of all sorts, which is you get the sort of high level engagement from very highly engaged people that is sort of based on sort of likes and retweets and like small dollar donations. And you lose sight of the sort of, All of the people who are processing and hearing what you're saying and are not liking or retweeting, they're not engaging in any way. You know, when you as a politician, when you say something that like sort of is a 30 percent issue that but it's really highly uh, engaging for those 30 percent of sort of base activist Democrats, you get like tons of small dollar donations engagement. But what you don't see is the hundreds of thousands of Americans who hear that disagree. They don't say a fucking thing. They go about their day and then they vote against you. Right. You just lost them, but you never even knew you lost them. And I think that that's the sort of thing I see with social media too, where like when I'm doing politics organizationally, I don't have a lot of incentives to sort of dunk on someone or like destroy that relationship forever. Because I know that the progressive movement, while it's very large, is also very small. And there's going to be at some point in your career or some point in your future where you're going to have to have a working relationship with that person. So if you're sort of destroying relationships along the way, like, you've got to be really careful about that. Because if you destroy one relationship every six months, you know, 20 years, you've destroyed 40 potentially very meaningful relationships. And all 40 of those people now work at organizations that you've got to get to sign a letter with you. And so the incentives of sort of Doing real politics, doing institutional politics, working within the Democratic Party are very misaligned with the incentives of finding a new person to dunk on every day to get engagement and, you know, prevent you from eventually building those relationships you're going to need. Because if you want to get to 50%, you know, which is what you have to do to win elections, it's what you have to do to pass legislation. A lot of those people in that 50% are not going to be the sort of most natural and closest allies to you. But I would like to say Twitter obviously is like a hellscape and it's very bad right now. But at the end of the day, the sort of structures of American politics and society and economy that have made everyone who's on Twitter like very liberal have also made like the sort of like very normie Democrats who work on Senate committees and work in the think tanks, also much more liberal. You know, young people are very, very liberal. And so the thing that I think about, and the thing that you have to consider with someone like AOC is, it is pretty close to certain that at some point within the next decade and a half, progressives will have enough power to meaningfully contest a presidential primary for to meaningfully make a play for power. And can we build the coalitions that's necessary to pass legislation afterwards. And have we built the policy expertise in the theories of politics, both legislatively and electorally that are necessary to sort of sustain that coalition in, in power? And I think of politics as being fundamentally quite cyclical and structural. But also, you know, when you're at the top of the cycle, you can entrench more gains or fewer gains. And when you're at the bottom of that cycle, you can sort of be totally destroyed or you can sort of maintain enough of a base to to come back and contest your power again.
2: Let, let me ask the question here from the other side of it. Do you worry that that's corrupting? I mean, you have an organization, you need to raise money for it. You're worried about keeping these relationships for 30, 40 years. Doesn't that mean there are things you can't say, places that are very hard for you to push the Overton window? Like, isn't that, when I think of the left critique of this, it's that, It is within these relationships of power and, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch mine, that a kind of false consensus gets erected where the people who have access to those circles are able to make their voices heard more loudly. And that even if the people, many people participating are doing it with good intentions, that overall there's a distorting effect on on politics that is in some ways what they are trying to fight against.
1: Right. And this is sort of gets to my frustration with left critiques, though, is like because no one actually is building long term sustained institutions that have stakeholders and employees and actually are sort of building power. There's really no guidebook for what are the sort of like questions you have to answer about sort of achieving and maintaining power. But I'll say this, you know, Data for Progress doesn't take corporate clients I myself have never, you know, worked for a sort of corporation. um, And I find that that entire sort of practice quite distasteful. I think that it's bad that a lot of, you know, Democratic administration people from from Obama's administration ended up working at Uber and and Facebook and McDonald's. Um, But if you sort of accept that, you have to think through, Okay, well, like these people still have to pay their kids, go to college and stuff like that. So what is your alternative? And what Data for Progress is doing that's really unique and like no one talks about it because like no one actually cares about sort of institutions in the way that we do is, you know, we are actually building an organization that has the ability to sort of do grants work, do foundation work, but also serve movements and serve progressive organizations and create a competitive sort of product in the in the form of polling. And so like our, we don't take on corporate clients, you know, when we have polling work that has revenue attached to it, it's for movement organizations that are currently going to work with pollsters that do take corporate clients. So we're actually trying to create a progressive ecosystem that can deliver on progressive victory and build progressive power that doesn't sort of need to sort of like work with corporate clients when like there's not enough political work to go around and that's wild and that's an amazing thing that i don't even know if it was possible 10 to 15 years ago but now is possible uh, but no one really talks about that because like i just think that there are so few people right now who are in sort of like these very less spaces that are like how are we sort of like negotiating with the fact that if we want to have this be a long-term thing we need to be able to pay dozens to hundreds of people enough salaries that they can live a comfortable life while also doing this work and not getting burnt out? And how do you fund that? And so I think like those are the questions that I'm really interested in exploring. And like, I think we've done it in a really cool way. And I think we're building something really amazing. But I just think it's 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 very lonely out there in the sort of world of what does it mean to sort of build a sustainable life that can have people who work for you and take leave Paternity leave, maternity leave for four months, and come back and still have an organization that's funded well enough to to let them do that.
2: I, I want to really um, co-sign what you're saying about the difficulties of creating serious, sustained institutions and how little credit, um, how little concern people have of the work of institution building. It's always very striking to me. I see it in the media too. Like you know, if you if you want to be able to do something where people have paternity leave and maternity leave and do it well. That's a project. And and I wish people were able to give each other more support and expertise on it.
0: Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. borough.com slash box i want to frame
2: this next part of the conversation and this goes on what you were just saying about what data for progress does because i want people to to have a sense of why i'm about to ask these questions and, and why they should care about what the answers are because of the way data for progress works and you can talk a bit more about that if you want you sit on a tremendous mountain of survey data You have more survey data at your fingertips than almost anybody else I I talk to in politics. And you have a lot of people interpreting it at a very high level, in my view, of rigor. And as such, your team has a lot of quite, I think, different views coming from a left perspective on what is true and false about politics than a lot of folks who I would say are working from a more theory first dimension. And so I want to hear move to talking a bit about the primary and a bit about theories of change from the left. Let's start by just give me your big picture narrative of the race. Um, how do you describe what happened in the primary and and, and where it ended up?
1: Sure. Well, I think I, I'm actually critical of, of both of the progressives and we actually didn't endorse either. I know like people had this weird perception like, oh, we were all in the tank for Warren. And that was sort of just because like, you know, when we come out with a thing that was like Bernie's policies are sort of stronger, more progressive than Warren's policies, you know, the Warren people were like, oh, you know, they're giving us marks for being progressive and they're giving Bernie slightly higher marks. But then if we would come out with something that was like mildly critical of Bernie Sanders, you know, it would be like magnified and amplified. And, you know, I said things on the record in the New York Times that both of the campaigns were upset about. But I think in retrospect, I ended up being right about both of them, which was I said that Sanders was not focused enough on creating a sort of path to 50% of the electorate. And I thought that Warren wasn't focused enough on creating a vision of progressive politics that primary voters would believe could win a general election. And so I think that my sort of twin critiques are that both Warren and Sanders had their flaws rooted in a theory of politics that said, all I have to do is to mobilize my base. And there's no need for me to sort of think about what people who don't come to the table agreeing with me believe. And for Bernie Sanders, that was in the primary, you know, he said, you know, you would see from Bernie Sanders allies, like amplifying, like, if you're not with us, like, fuck off, we'll find, you know, millions of young voters to turn out. You know, I studied voter turnout for for years, like, there's very few laws of politics more ironclad than it is very, very difficult to get lots and lots of young people to, to turn out and to durably change turnout. And when it happens, and I believe it will happen, it will be due entirely to the fact that we have changed to an automatic voter registration system with some sort of mail-in balloting, but it will not be due to an effective campaign talking about right the right issues, knocking on the right doors. And then with Warren, you sort of had this idea of like, okay, well, she wants to win over the whole Democratic Party, but there was a sense, from my perspective, that the campaign was not focused enough on how the way they were talking about issues was playing in the general election. You see this a lot in progressive groups where it's like, oh, well, in the general, we're just going to mobilize our base. We're going to mobilize new voters in the general. We're going to make sure turnout is very high, particularly among African Americans and Latinos, um, and that's what we're going to need to beat Trump. And You know, you saw in the head-to-heads that that theory was not sort of being proven in the the data. And I think you know maybe they could have proven that in the data, but they refused to engage with with the polling. It would be necessary to sort of show to the Democratic electorate, which was number one concerned about electability, I can beat Trump. And voters are much smarter than people give them credit for. I think that this is so many theories the electorate from the theory that you can knock on a bunch of doors and change people's minds to the theory that you can sort of run on any issue you want, assumes first and foremost that voters are stupid. And the reality is that voters are incredibly smart. They have preferences on policies that are defined. They have issue importance that is defined, and they are capable of figuring out which candidate stands where on which issue and voting accordingly.
2: I want to go back to something you said about agreement and turning out voters that agree with you. It often strikes me that how people understand agreement and disagreement in the electorate is a dividing line that we don't talk about enough or very well. And I found just traversing this primary that the left often had a very strange theory. I I would call it almost like a paradoxical theory of agreement and disagreement. On the one hand, everybody they interacted with in elite politics was an enemy. So like, I am much further to the left than the country is like, (laughs) Unbelievably further to the left than the country is. But if I agreed with somebody on 85% of things, and even the last 15%, my disagreements were largely tactical, like I was the enemy. And on the other hand, there was this view that the country fundamentally agreed with them almost entirely, right? That they believed very deeply in disagreement with left leaning elites but didn't believe there was disagreement in the country, that there was latent agreement in the country, and it just had to be activated. That if people heard Bernie Sanders making these arguments or heard even Elizabeth Warren making these arguments, arguing for Medicare for All, showing whose side they're on, that this deep material-driven leftism that has just been suppressed through something or other was going to emerge and allow you to run a campaign in which the fact that you wouldn't compromise is what created the level of agreement. And it always struck me as very strange, but it also helped me see something I hadn't seen that clearly before, which is that an incredibly important dividing line in politics that leads to both strategy and campaign approaches is, do you believe a substantial portion of the of the electorate disagrees with you and you have to deal with that disagreement or do you believe they all agree with you and they just have to hear what you're saying clearly enough
1: and i mean the last thing that you could sort of point to there though is like you could also say they disagree with you they would agree with you if you they could hear you clearly but they can never fucking hear you clearly i mean this is the sort of fundamental problem with sort of you know this theory of change of oh we're going to go to these like sort of working class non-college districts, and we're going to hit them with an economic populist message. And you say, okay, well, how are you hitting them with a message, right? Because people engage with politics hundreds upon hundreds of times a day from their church, from talking with their coworkers, from reading the newspaper, from reading online news, from watching online television, the tools that you as a modern campaign have are very small. You have the tool of earned media, which is you can get the media to cover your policy platform, which the media rarely does, and there's no local media to do it much anymore. You have the tool of hitting them with a digital ad, which means that while they're scrolling through Facebook, they say 15 seconds of content that they may or may not pay attention to. You can knock on their door. The sort of expected treatment effect of that is like something like one to two percentage points. And you only actually get answers on you know one out of every hundred knocks. And then you can run TV ads, which I do think are actually more effective than uh, many people uh, sort of on the Twitter sphere think. But fundamentally, you know, they're watching a TV ad in between NCIS. So, like, the problem is we don't actually have the tools to sort of get a sort of consistent progressive message out there in a way that voters are interacting with enough to actually fundamentally sort of shift their views 180. And it's kind of a little bit crazy that we started to believe that we could. And what I argue that a lot of this analytic sort of problem came from was seeing Bernie Sanders as winning a lot of non-college whites because they agreed fundamentally with his message of sort of left socialist politics and Bernie Sanders of winning a lot of non-college whites because they agreed with his message of fuck Hillary Clinton (laughs) and they didn't like Clinton. And That actually led to this massive strategic failure of not realizing that college-educated whites and obviously people of color are much more sympathetic to big government interventions in the economy than non-college whites. And in fact, it was the sort of more suburban districts that were going to be fecund for democratic gains in 2018. And it's actually sort of suburban and urban Democrats who make up the basis of the Progressive Caucus and the medicare for all caucus. And in fact, you know, democrats who come from overwhelmingly rural and non-college white congressional districts are actually much more conservative on average than the democrats that come from more sort of denser suburban or urban districts. And I mean, like this is just such a fundamental analytical error that it is literally reality reversed upon itself and you have people who are going to the most rural, most republican parts of the country and thinking that they can sort of fundamentally change the politics there by knocking on doors, and the reality is that at the end of the day, most of those folks are partisans who are going to come home. And what a good campaign can do for you, what a good canvas operation can do for you, is you can change an electorate at the margins, you know, by a couple of percentage points. So if you have a well well-run field organization in a district that's very closely contested, you can flip that district. But if you have a well-run field organization in a district where there's sort of very little partisan competition, you're not going to fundamentally change that district. Now, in the field, actually does matter a lot more. And I think a lot of these campaign tactics, such as earned media, can be much more effective in Democratic primaries, which is why I've argued for a strategy of sort of progressives really doing the work to sort of like win local, state, and eventually congressional power by contesting sort of uh, high ideology uh, primaries.
2: So just real quick there to... to- pull out what that means yeah what you want progressives to do is to do a lot more challenging of moderate democrats in safe blue seats that this idea that what you're going to do is you're going to win these rural or swing purple seats by running um, democratic socialists, that just has not borne out. But there are all kinds of Democrats in California, in New Jersey, in New York, et cetera, who represent um, districts. that Democrats win by 15, 20, 30 points, but they themselves are moderate. And, and your strategy here that you've argued for a bunch of times is that that's where you want to build a much more progressive power base to take over the party from the inside.
1: Yeah. I mean, it cost $200 million for Sanders to lose the presidential election. And I think it cost $1 million to get uh, Ayanna Pressley in Congress. And I think it cost about half that to get AOC in Congress. So, dollar for dollar, it's a much more effective allocation of resources. But I I do want to say that I, I don't think it's necessarily true that progressives and leftists don't have an agenda that can win in suburban races. One of my key arguments is that there actually are very core aspects of the progressive agenda that can win in suburban races. I think Gillibrand's family leave. I think Bernie Sanders, you know, medical prize funds, Jan Schakowsky and Elizabeth Warren's drug manufacturing legislation. These are places where in many cases, the establishment is afraid to go as far as we are going on fighting things like prescription drug companies, fighting things like fossil fuel companies. And these are core parts of the progressive agenda that can actually win effectively in suburban Districts, but we refuse to do that because there's this very weird view in some left circles that like suburban voters, particularly suburban women, are somehow tainted. You know, wine mom. I don't know. It's like you've seen this on Twitter. It's it's like very yeah, weird to say aloud. I want to.
2: I want to speak uh, up for that view for a minute, or to try to try to offer it. I think in a more generous form, which is that the things you just named, I agree, are progressive policies, but they're not the big symbolic progressive policies, maybe with the exception of Gillibrand's um, Family Leave Act, that get people into it. And that what seems to me to have happened with this wine mom's dismissiveness, but more generally with this idea that you can't build a progressive politics atop the professional managerial class, this idea that the only true leftist politics will have to be built on the backs of working class voters, is that these suburban voters you're talking about, they have too much to lose. They have too much to protect. They're not going to want their own taxes to go high enough. That There's an idea in progressive or in left politics, certainly, that what you're trying to do is run a class-based project. And if you're going to do this on class warfare grounds, what you're going to have to have happen is that the working class is going to have to mass together to vote for the kind of much more profound... Power redistribution policies than suburbanites, um, who have at least in theory more status quo bias, might permit. But as you say, the problem with that is that the suburban voters in general are significantly more liberal than these more rural, you know, practically white working class, but not even only white working class voters. And it just isn't the case that the professional managerial class makes people more conservative. It's that the working class is not as liberal as people's theories want them to be.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, To some extent, at this point, I sort of my reaction to that argument is like, God bless you. Go do it. Come back to me in 10 years and show me what you've done. But it's not like we don't have evidence to this effect. There are members of Congress right now that represent overwhelmingly rural and non college districts. Uh, Colin Peterson is one of them. Have you ever looked at the Colin Peterson voting record?
2: (laughs) I have, you know, I've specifically looked at the Colin Peterson. Let, let's just say who who Colin Peterson is, real okay. Minnesota.
1: He represents the most Trump district that any Democrat represents, and he in the House in the House, yeah. And he's very conservative. He's, the, he's probably the most conservative uh, Democrat in the House. Um, maybe only Henry Cuellar uh, is more conservative. And you know, this is this is sort of like a pattern. Um, of, last night, actually, because I knew I was going to do this. I asked Colin McAuliffe, one of my data scientists, to take a look at this. So he looked at non-college white congressional districts held by Democrats. Among those that are below median, so they have less non-college whites than average, 63% of the representatives that represent those districts support Medicare for All. They've co-sponsored the bill. Among members with above-median non-college whites, uh, 36% has supported the bill. Below median non-college white, 52%. Of those members are in the House Progressive Caucus, uh, compared to above median, 30% are in the Progressive Caucus. And if you go to city labs, and like this is something anyone could do, you can pull the density they have there. It goes from like urban to like dense suburban to urban, suburban to rural, suburban to rural. And the sort of more dense the district is, the more urban or suburban it is, the more likely the representative there is to be in the House Progressive Caucus, and support Medicare for All. And it's like the members that these folks send to Congress are sort of more conservative. The views that they express in surveys are more conservative. Uh, And you know, Maine recently passed Medicaid expansion, and the sort of more college and suburban areas voted for it, and the more non-college and rural areas voted against it. So I think that the sort of density of evidence at this point is that the people who are most sort of uh, receptive to our agenda are not the po- the folks that people have been targeting. And and they, I think that like, you know, at this at this point, I sort of say, look, if you want to do that work, like go for it. I think that it's not the sort of most effective way to actually get an implementable left agenda across the finish line, but there's no use in like constantly fighting it. You know, let me do my theory of change, you do your theory of change, and we'll see 10 years from now where we are. But I also think that it's sort of baffling in how definitively this idea has been proven wrong by recent lived history. You know, we had an Affordable Care Act fight. We had a bunch of rural representative districts in Congress. Do you know what they did during the Affordable Care Act fight? They weren't fucking fighting for public option. They were fighting to fucking ban abortion as part of the bill. So I I just think you have to- And they
2: killed the public option.
1: Right. Yes, I know. It's I like, mean, literally,
2: like, those were the, like, Ben Nelson, who yes. um, represented a lot of rural voters in Nebraska. I mean, I, I end up in this fight all the time. But, like, the you public option the didn't... You
1: just move on with your life. <laughs> well, I, I, most, I mostly have. But, like,
2: the public option died because of Democrats who represented rural white voters killed it. That's
1: what happened. But let me finish the theory, because what I view as the sort of fundamental wronghood of the the sort of thing you said about the professional managerial class and why I actually think the left agenda has a possibility in the suburbs now and has a possibility with college-educated voters is that the structure of inequality has not been kind to the Republican political theory. So if you go back to Reagan, the sort of Republican political theory is You give tax cuts to the top third of the income distribution, the middle third of the income distribution, you give them a lot of ideology, right? And you create a sort of durable coalition. Whereas now, if you look at sort of the Trump-Ryan theory, it's you give tax cuts to the top 1% of the 1% and you tell the suburbs to go fuck themselves. And that means that a lot of suburban voters are much more worried about how do I pay for childcare? How do I pay for college? How do I make sure I have good health care, my kids have good health care? Then they are concerned about their taxes. And I think that if you sort of look at the Republican rhetoric, they've tried to sort of like rally around tax cuts again, and it's just not working for them because no one believes anymore that the Republican Party is cutting their taxes. And so I think that the suburbs and college educated folks are more sympathetic than ever to the sort of case for social democracy and are more ready than ever to sort of see a more robust and expanded role for government in their lives. They're ready to see a much more robust and gov- uh, expansive government role in fighting climate change. And I think that, you know, the idea that the pharmaceutical reforms that I'm talking about are sort of not big and ambitious, I think is, is, is absurd. I mean, if you have a government that can manufacture drugs, if you have a government that can break the patents at any time, the way that Doggett wants. And if you have a government that owns increasingly the patents of drugs, the way that Bernie Sanders proposes, you've brought the most powerful and profitable sector of the American economy to its knees. And I think that you're delivering massive benefits to voters in a way that the Democratic Party has not been able to for for a very long time. And
2: I think something that's interesting in this is you can look at politicians right now who are pushing this kind of politics and and I think doing it quite well. So one I happen to know pretty well is Katie Porter in um in in California because she represents a district I grew up in which never elected a Democrat to Congress until Katie Porter in 2018 and it's a very suburban district. it's uh, above average in income um it's very diverse and she's Quite left, but not in exactly the, the the squad way. She's very left in ways that are sort of you know, as you say, like it's like a suburban left approach to to politics. And my sense is she's doing very very well, but it works off of a kind of challenging power from the perspective of people getting screwed, but not necessarily people who want society overturned.
1: Right? Exactly. I mean, if you look at the sort of most sort of big, bold, progressive heroes out there. And even the sort of progressive, like roll up the sleeves and get things done. They certainly don't represent the districts that you would expect based on reading Twitter. And I think Katie Porter is an example, but I, I look at Katie Porter and I have such a deep excitement um, because she is such a talented legislator. Uh, but I also have a little bit of, of pain because I know that we spent the 2018 cycle as the left and as progressives looking at a lot of the wrong races. And if we had been smarter about this, more organized about this beforehand, we would have a lot more Katie Porters in this country, but we seeded the suburbs. Uh, that's what I sort of was getting at in the piece that um, Zach wrote in Fox. We seeded the suburbs to the mainstream of the party, even the, the moderates in the party, instead of making the case that there are that in the suburban districts, we could run on the sort of the sort of core agenda that I would have pushed would have been, you know, aggressive pharmaceutical reform, uh, aggressive clean energy, jobs, and sort of aggressive, like sort of anti-pollution measures, and then sort of family leave and childcare as the sort of like three planks of a, of a progressive candidate running in those districts. But we sort of made the decision for reasons that uh, continues to baffle me to really double down on these sort of much more rural districts, much more non-college districts. And those ended up being um, much less fertile, fertile ground for progressives in in the 2018 cycle.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at Greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
0: Support for this podcast comes from constant contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life.
2: You sent me this piece that went through some of the myths that you think are damaging that people have come to believe, particularly on the left, although probably not only there, about politics. I want to go through some of the other ones here. Um, One that I think hits all of us where it hurts is that the idea that it is possible to fundamentally change the composition of the electorate by knocking doors and organizing, which I think we all want to believe, both because we want more non-voters to vote, but also because Non-voters are great because you can always say that the reason they don't vote is because politicians are not saying what you already believe loudly enough, and um, they just really want to hear that. Uh, and so the way to bring out the non-voters is to run exactly the campaign I want to run. But you say that in all directions, you can't change the composition of the electorate through that kind of field organizing. Why?
1: Yeah. And I, this is, again, one of those things that like people are surprised to learn, I believe, that I've like believed... I was at Demos and I was telling people like, look, you're not going to change the composition electorate by running on the right issues. I said, there are two ways you can change the composition electorate. One, you can pass laws. If you pass laws, you can change the composition electorate. And there there are two ways you can do that. One is you pass laws like Medicaid expansion. We now know that Medicaid expansion changed the composition electorate. Two plausible theories here. One is that when people have healthcare and they are sort of less financially strained and stressed the way that not having healthcare makes you you sort of can start thinking about oh how do i register to vote and how do i vote um and also like i want to vote to sort of keep this benefit that i am benefiting from um and the second way you do it is like if you know if you get medicaid you you interact with the medicaid office which according to the national voter registration act passed in 1993 uh has to give you the opportunity to register to vote so one way to do it is to pass laws. I do believe in these very important policy feedback mechanisms that when you pass laws that help working people, working people understand the sort of what the Democratic Party is doing for them and they are ready to vote for it. But I don't think just saying those things in a campaign makes people vote for you because people hear a lot of things from a lot of politicians. And the second thing is, is you pass laws to make it fucking easier to vote. So if you want to change the composition electorate, the way you do it is you automatically register everyone to vote. You know, and then once they're registered to vote, you can mobilize them. But if you're mobilizing someone who's not registered to vote, you can convince them that they want to vote. But you know, in a lot of states, they may have missed the registration deadline by now. So I think that it's about the, the only way you can durably change the electorate over the long term is you change the legal structure that affects voting change the registration laws, change the voting laws. And I support that. And that's what the work I've done at Demos, the work I do now. I just think that the idea, and when you sort of walk back and think about it, the idea that you're going to knock on someone's door and, you know, have a, a massive impact on whether or not they vote is a bit absurd. Now you can change things in the margin. And I don't want to say that that's not useful Intervention. Uh, But, you know, we're talking about margins of a couple percentage points. Um, So you still have to do a lot of different work. I mean, American politics is, you know, a lot of people who like Democrats and a lot of people who like Republicans. And, you know, that's not really going to change. You're not going to fundamentally change that in a campaign cycle because you just don't have the tools, right? So much of that is something that someone's voted that way all their life then you've got these weird people who switch from Democrats and Republicans every year. And uh, we do all the, all this polling and people are always like, Sean, why are independents like they're always undecided in your polls? And I'm like, because if you can't decide between the Republicans and the Democrats, w- why would I expect you to have a strong opinion on like a tax credit <laughs> for solar energy? These are really weird people um, who sort of one time will vote for Obama, against Romney, and then we'll switch and vote for Trump. Like, you got to be kind of a little bit weird to sort of like be switching in that way. And so, so much of politics is that that structural reality that is very difficult to change, but it does change over time. Um, and I think we're going to see that with like sort of millennials aging into voting at a high rate, that what you're talking about uh, when you're doing a campaign is things on the margins. I always say campaigns are not these like big, beautiful, extravagant, you know, sexy, stylistic things it is trench warfare, right? It is a very brutal battle over the very small number of people who can sort of be won over. So I think that I'm just saying like, yes, you should knock on doors. Yes, you should run TV ads. Yes, you should run digital ads. And yes, you should think a lot about how you do that and make sure your messages are effective, but you're not gonna fundamentally change this. Like we've we, we've been studying voter turnout. The census has tracked these data for the last 50 years and there's never been an election in which youth turnout was higher than turnout among older people. That's just never going to happen. So you have to work within that structure. And I think that the way you do that is you change laws and you pass policies that create feedback mechanisms.
2: So another myth, it is ideal to advocate for maximalist policies rather than come up with incremental reforms. And I'll give an example of this, both of them within the Bernie Sanders world. You brought up a policy of his that I absolutely love. And I'm certain I've written about more than any other living journalist, which is, this idea to create a prize system for pharmaceutical creation instead of just a patent system. And I used to cover this policy every single year when he would reintroduce it because I think it is such a good idea. He never, ever spoke about it in the campaign, to my knowledge, where he would talk all the time about Medicare for all in a very maximalist construction of it, even much more so than his older conceptions of how Medicare for all would work. And Behind that was a theory that maximalist policies will drive voter turnout. They will excite people. That's what mobilizes people. Whereas these smaller incremental policies are not going to do anything for anyone. Why do you think that's wrong?
1: Yeah, a couple thoughts here. One is because people hear politicians say stuff all the time and they started to sort of zone it out. And because I go back to that fundamental point that voters are smart. When voters hear you say that you're going to do 20 things. They know you can't do 20 things because they're not dumb. And so what I think that the ideal is, is you pick very ambitious progressive policies that can deliver immediate gains to people that they can see in their lives. You run on those and then you deliver those gains. And the problem with always running on maximalist policies is you create a very deep expectation gap between what you're promising and what you're delivering. We really should try to be less cynical as politicians, as policymakers, when we're talking to voters, like voters will figure this out. If you keep saying you're going to do something and you don't deliver on it, people are going to notice. And so my view on this is why take back to voters half a loaf when you can deliver to voters the whole loaf? And I'm not saying like, it's, it's never ideal to sort of have ambitious visions for the world. Um, But what I am saying is, is like, we also have to have sort of like direct implementable winnable policies that we take to voters to show you know we are serious about governing we are serious about delivering benefits that you can see um and we've actually seen with like you know when a democratic governor gets in office and they say i'm going to pass medicaid expansion and they pass medicaid expansion and then people have medicaid then they turn out to vote and that is really really important to winning and building political power i think when de blasio runs on i'm going to pass universal pre-K, and then he wins the election and he delivers universal pre-K. That is very important. I think progressive politics needs to have that with voters where we're showing that these concrete, progressive, ambitious visions are an achievable one. And I think sometimes when we sort of say we're going to do all of this stuff and it's too big, one, you, you sort of demobilize the people who are like dedicated to your campaign because they start to sort of believe that progressives can't deliver. And two, you sort of overwhelm voters and you make voters think that you can't deliver. And I really worry that massive victories the progressives have had in terms of fundamentally reshaping what the Democratic Party believes about itself, we have actually like never get to talk about. We never talk about, and I, I bring it up all the time. I, we never talk about the fact that 10 years ago, It was an open question whether or not the most ambitious healthcare reform of the last three decades would include a ban on abortion. And now that's not an open question. The public option has become a mainstream position on climate. Everyone agrees we need to pair any sort of carbon pricing with ambitious and aggressive standards and investment. And so we're winning so many of the battles and a lot of people who we want to be excited about the fact that we're winning those battles and we're passing those laws. Don't know that or don't see those as victories. When you're doing an idea as big as Medicare for All, which I support and I believe I will see in my lifetime, you have to show voters that that's not scary. And I think the way you do that is you show them, look, we expanded Medicaid. That's a government program. That is the government providing Medicaid, and it works. And then you say, look, we've got we we we, we, we did this massive pharmaceutical reform. We dramatically cut down the profits in the pharmaceutical industries and by the way we're still seeing innovation in drugs and then people start to believe okay this is less scary like this is the first step and the other thing you have to do is you got to show Jamie Raskin that you can win um you got to show like look we can we can beat back surprise billing you know we can actually take on the sort of um the sort of uh, hospital lobby and we can win and that that t- shows to voters, that shows to representatives, that shows like you actually have the real political capital that it takes to win the battle.
2: One of the difficulties here actually comes from the media, which likes to cover maximalist and very controversial policies. I mean, if you take, say, Medicare for all, for instance, just every debate was about abolishing health insurance and and, and the taxes. and. A lot of, uh, I think, particularly political actors, staff, advocates, etc., come up on social media, where you really see every day that if you can say something that people disagree with, you're able to get a lot more attention than if you say if then if you say something people simply agree with. I think really lean into that. And, and an argument you make, which I think is very related to this, is that persistent media coverage of unpopular policies is harmful to progressivism. And, and I want to use here as a grounding example. Decriminalizing border crossing, which Julian Castro pushed onto the agenda in that debate. And Castro is a, a very smart politician and he's won in places that, you know, you do need to like win a broad coalition of voters, but it is just literally almost the least popular thing you can find to poll. And it became a litmus test. It gets a ton of attention. I'm curious what you think of that and 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 how you should and how people should think about that tension between using an Overton window approach to bring unpopular policies into the conversation but then not being able to control like how they then get taken up by the media and become the defining element of everybody's immigration platform or healthcare platform or whatever it might be
1: the way i think about politics is i think about in in policymaking and in public opinion like a nervous system and I think that what progressives really struggle with is that we've really lost a nervous system for where the American public is on a lot of issues. And we don't get instant feedback on a lot of these policies. Now, in fact, in fact, we actually get the opposite of it. When Julian Castro takes these very ambitious stance outside of public opinion, he's rewarded with lots of support from activists. Lots of small dollar donors. I'm sure any tweets about that got lots of retweets and lots of likes. And we've created that nervous system for the sort of very hyper engaged partisans. What Julian Castro doesn't see is all of the people who are thinking about voting for him who now think, oh, maybe he can't beat Trump, you know, or even maybe some of the Trump voters who are like, oh, I don't know about this Trump guy, uh, who now are like, oh, but the Democrats are too radical, you know, back to my. Back to, you know, I'm going to show up and vote for Trump. You know, people don't tell you when you've lost them. They just go about their daily life and then they vote against you. So am I saying like, oh, Democrats should not support decriminalizing the border? No, I'm saying we need to go back to that thinking about politicians versus movements and what the movement should be doing out there and what journalists should be doing out there and what opinion makers should be doing out there is talking about the sort of fact that well, here's what decriminalizing the border means. And the problem is, is that we've seeded that role to politicians, and we've sort of made them the ones who are supposed to be explaining these things to the American public, when in fact, you know, we should have activists out there first, we should have opinion makers out there first, we should sort of shape that public opinion, so that politicians can sort of step into that public opinion. And a lot of the problem here is just fundamentally the fact is and I talked to someone who was like writing a question to their page, and they were like, look, we our job is to sort of get things that like make Democrats, you know, say something newsworthy and yell at each other. And like, yes, I think that a lot of the ways that the primary system is shaped up right now is actually very bad for progressives ability to sort of control the way that our ideas are understood by the public bad for the Democratic Party and sort of shaping the way that it's viewed by the public and is not serving us in terms of actual concrete long-term policy wins. So what I'd say, and the fact that Castro sort of had this other mold when he was a a mayor sort of shows the fact that these are very uh, systemic problems that are driven by media incentives. But I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to decriminalize border crossings. We should. And in fact, in our polling, once people understand and internalize what that means, they're very sympathetic to the policy. What I'm saying is we're getting the cart in front of the horse. We're trying to have people who fundamentally are supposed to work within public opinion, shape it. When in fact, we have all these other organizations whose job is to sort of shape public opinion and shape the way people are understanding it.
2: Uh, I want to connect two of these here that you had. One is that there's a view particularly on the left that most people who engage in Democratic party politics are corrupt and bought off when in fact you write that they're actually a lot more liberal than past people who engage in Democratic party politics and the other is it because I think this is very connected is it getting your hands dirty thinking about and making trade-offs doing transactional politics? Is a bad thing and that it's better to remain pure and i think they're connected because i think the reason a lot of folks think these democratic party players are corrupt is that they see the outcome of the trade-offs and they assume the trade-offs are done for corrupt reasons as opposed for dealing with political constraint or electorates but i'd like to hear you talk a bit about that because this dividing line of how do you feel about both yourself having to deal with the trade-offs and about the other people who have to deal in trade-offs, seems to me to split a lot of people on the left from each other right now.
1: Yeah, I, I really dislike the view that, you know, people who do the hard work to go work in an office like Merkley's office, get their hands dirty, learn the weeds of policy are somehow like bad people. And I think it's partially because of the way the journalism happens. You know, like how many people know the two women on Wyden's staff who gave Every unemployed American $600 in additional UI benefits. You know, how many people know that that's because people dedicated themselves to the intricacies of policymaking and got to the right place at the right time and were able to deliver one of the biggest gains for working class Americans in the last decade? You know, like nobody valorizes that. Um, But I think it's really important. And I think that. Well, I mean, a lot of the reason people don't understand that people who do Democratic party politics are very liberal is because they don't fucking talk to people who do democratic party politics. Um, and if you talk to them, you'll sort of understand where they come from. And the reason it's good to talk to them is because when you want to get what you, when you want to get laws passed, you have to understand how the people who are gonna be passing and implementing laws are thinking about that because you can't persuade them, Otherwise, it goes right back to this sort of question of not wanting to, to do the hard work of of persuasion and coalition building. But you know, it's you know, there's a political scientist named Xander Furness, and I believe uh, Alexander Hotel Fernandez, and a couple other folks have surveyed members of Congress, their staffers, and they find that all Democratic staffers hold quite liberal views on policy and policymaking, because like, you know, there these are all people who are highly educated. They're they're educated enough to have much better paying jobs. But instead of doing that, they do the very long, hard and thankless work of trying to pass and implement laws. And I'm not saying everybody who does Democratic Party politics is good, but we have enough surveys to know that these folks are very progressive. I think of guys like Brian Fallon, who's like a Hillary Clinton spokesperson, who is now a, a like Marxist-Leninist uh, when it comes to the Supreme Court. And uh, you see this in the sort of Senate campaigns. once these folks are like running presidential campaigns in democratic primaries, they they go for all sorts of incredibly progressive pieces of legislation because they are fundamentally very progressive people who try to work within constraints. And I think that if the progressive movement in the left is ever going to be successful, you have to understand how these various actors, are thinking and the way they're thinking about political capital and the way they're thinking about sort of legislative timelines in sort of committees. And there are people who do this who are leftists very effectively. I, I look to my friend Alex Lawson, who's just sort of a guy who he's at Social Security Works and he's the guy, if you want to know about like committees and stuff like that, he just has it off the top of his head and he'll give you like, here are the big fights that we're having over policy. But far too few people, I think, are, are really engaging in those policy fights and when I, when we started doing Data for Progress and moving stuff onto the Hill, I called up a bunch of people who were in Hill offices and I would ask them, like, do you believe our polling? And if you don't, what do I need to do to make you believe our polling? Like, what are the sort of ways that I can persuade you to my point of view? And I think that on the left, there, there tends to not be that sort of first discussion with people of like, what is it that is the roadblock for us sort of coming to a yes? And what can we do to prove that credibility to you? Prove that we're, we're sort of approaching politics from the desire of helping you and helping people. And I think one reason it's tough for the left to do that is because we spend a lot of, you know, a lot of folks spend a lot of time on Twitter saying that these people are neoliberal corporatist hacks and shills. And, you know, one of my sort of fundamental views on politics is people do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so much of politics is about making decisions with less than the ideal amount of information, right? Most political decisions are made with less than the ideal amount of information. And so a lot of it's going to come down to trust and a lot of it's going to come down to sort of gut. And I think that's why I want people with more progressive guts in Congress. But I also want progressives to, when you take a A piece of legislation to a member of Congress takes employing to a member of Congress that that member of Congress believes that you really have their best interests at heart and you care about them and you actually want to persuade them.
2: One of the interesting things here that feels like attention and sometimes is, but in a way people don't appreciate often isn't, is that I do think that there's a way that a soft corruption often exists within, I'll use here the Democratic Party, but obviously it's true for the Republican Party, and quite left ideas. So I think a lot of people will look at a staffer who, when, say, their Democrats go into the minority, will leave and go make money in industry for a couple of years. Or they'll just go do something that you wish they hadn't done, and often that, frankly, like I wish they hadn't done. But I've watched a lot of these people also come back. And there's still a lot more left than their bosses. And in some ways, they're more angry at the industry they worked in for a bit because that's where they could get a job. But having been there, they hated it. And there's a deep sense um, among some that these people have become irredeemable. And because I care about the trust folks place in government, I would like to see stronger structures against revolving door politics and people going from one to the other. But at the same time, I think there is a real mistake made that – both people who have worked in industry, but even to that matter, industries themselves can sometimes be allies in in left causes. And there's often a real distaste for pluralistic politics where you have to bring in some parts of an industry to get something passed, where you have to deal with, say, hospitals because you need to pass a healthcare bill through Congress and there's a hospital in every single district in the country, more or less. and. I get where the suspicion comes from, but it can also really hold you back because if like every industry and you know, everybody who's worked in an industry is themselves now an enemy, you miss a lot of people who could be allies and you need a lot of allies to pass anything in the American political system.
1: Right. That's sort of, this is the Gary Gensler phenomenon. Yes. So, I mean, there's a couple of questions here. Like one of the questions you made is this sort of like interest group negotiation sort of question. And I do think that like, you know, when I think about why is it that I want to do pharmaceutical reform, it's because I think that there are a lot of powerful people who could become aligned in favor of pharmaceutical reform, because I think the pharmaceutical industry has put itself a big target on its back. So I think that we always have to be thinking of like, where is the sort of like, interest rate against us. Where are they the most weak? Where do they have these contradictions? I think that's a fundamentally leftist socialist way of thinking about politics. I mean, if you look at Medicaid expansion, one of the most interesting things about Medicaid expansion is we did four Medicaid expansion ballot initiatives in very red states. And they passed in Utah, passed in um, Idaho, passed in Nebraska, I believe. It didn't pass in Montana. And the reason it didn't pass Montana is because every other state that's done Medicaid expansion has sort of used some sort of bed tax or hospital tax to pay for it, which ends up sort of like basically meaning there's there's less lobbying interest against it because hospitals fundamentally want the Medicaid money and they're willing to take the tax. What they did in Montana was they did a cigarette tax and that really pissed off the cigarette industry and they spent a shitload of money lobbying against it and lost. So I do think that having a really smart, theory of interest group politics is going to be essential to the left but on the question of congressional staffers taking jobs i mean my vision and my goal and what i want data for progress to be a model of is we should be paying congressional staffers more because it should be a genuine lived reality that lots of young people come to congress work their way up to the point where they've been a staffer for 15 20 years they know That world inside and out, because that means they're going to know more than the lobbyists do. And fundamentally, it is incredibly hard to have a child. It is incredibly hard to have a good life on a congressional salary. And if we change that, it would fundamentally alter the power dynamics in our politics. And like, this is not a sexy thing, but it would lead to an incredible difference in in, in party in sort of partisan power. And I'll say this is not just a problem in Congress. I mean, I was talking to someone in the Alaska state legislature, and they have like three staffers for every member of the Alaska legislature. And that, I mean, that gives them an incredible amount of policymaking capacity. When you work at a city council that has an economist, instead of having to rely on a lobbyist economist, that gives you an incredible amount of policymaking capacity. So keeping young people in government would have a massive impact on the sort of possibility of left politics for the sort of reason I talked about before, which is you have these sort of cycles of power. And when progressives have power, you want to have lots and lots of progressives who understand the inner working of governments ready to take power there. And I think that having those people sort of be in Congress for long enough would be very useful.
2: Yeah, it has been such a boon to the right that they've managed to make things like congressional pay raises toxic. Because if you want to have a government that is able to withstand lobbying, that doesn't use lobbying as an extension of itself to get knowledge and staffing and and, and power, you really need to make government pay well. This is a fight I think Democrats are just afraid to have. It's not even that they don't believe it, but you should be able, if you've been an excellent congressional staffer for a long time, you should be able to make, I think, a lot of money. Like I think you should be able to be quite affluent in government because we want the best people to be in government. And it just isn't the case that money doesn't affect people's decisions. If you decide it can only be people who are a little bit ascetic who do it, like then you're just going to lose out on a lot of talent. Not that we lose out on that talent, but that talent will turn against you. That talent will be used by other people to overwhelm. Government And it's such a killer thing that we will have, you know, people working at the Federal Reserve of New York or in the Treasury Department. And the way to make money is to leave and go to industry. It would be so much cheaper to just pay them as much as industry does. So they never have to leave because in general, they don't want to leave. But at a certain point, you know, you have a kid and your kid has special needs and your kid would do way better at this private school that is a particular program for people with their needs. And Your boss has lost power and you just lost a fight. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, how long can you keep telling your partner that you're not going to make the money you can and help your kid? Because, like, you know, public service is great. Like, at a certain point, you lose those people and you don't want to. But it's a hard fight for people to have, in part because I think in this particular way, the left's belief that money is corrupting sort of combines in with the right's belief that government is bad. To make it that nobody really wants to fight for government to pay enough to be as good as it should be um whereas in other countries government pays a lot um and it is a very high social status thing to do and so you don't just get like great legislative staff but you get really good people in the agencies i mean you have a lot of good people in the agencies too people should read michael lewis's fifth risk but we should really spend a lot more on government compensation which is not a thing anybody wants to hear or fight for so let me jump to um Something else here, which is that there's a fight about whether or not the Democratic Party can kind of be taken over from the inside or it really needs to be burnt down. Um, and I thought it was really interesting to see Joe Biden win the primary and then not take the stance that the left needs to bend the knee, that Joe Biden winning the primary means the moderates are right about everything, but instead say, He's going to take on Elizabeth Warren's bankruptcy plan and that he's going to you know, form six policy task forces composed of his people and Bernie Sanders' people and basically take this attitude that he didn't beat the left, but that he's instead going to govern in coalition with it. And it makes really apparent that there are ways— for the left to simply influence and even drive a a Biden at least campaign, but but potentially even administration, which I don't think is a possibility all that many people were thinking about before. So I'm curious what you think the possibilities are for the left in a Biden administration.
1: Yeah. Um so a couple of thoughts here. One on the sort of taking over the party versus sort of performing it. I think you know or my view is, but I, I really think that the taking over the party people sort of didn't think through the Sort of what was going to happen after the sort of won the primary, which is Chuck Schumer is still Senate Minority Leader. And in our best case scenario, he'd be the Senate Majority Leader. Nancy Pelosi will still be the Speaker of the House. You know, you will still have the overwhelming majority of Democratic House members be someone who didn't endorse you uh, and Democratic Senate uh, members. And you'll still have the massive ecosystem that surrounds the Democratic Party. And you know we saw this with Trump. Even someone who was able to hostily take over the Republican Party, ended up signing a lot of their priorities into law. And so I think that the sort of way that the Warren folks have approached this over the long term, of you know Barat is now uh, overseeing uh, some of the bailout oversights, and he was working with with Warren's campaign, is more productive. It's like you have to sort of like change all of these structures that exist around the party, in order to sort of shift power. And I do think that Biden, who, who's not my first choice of nominee, there's going to be a carrot and stick. I think that progressives absolutely need to be ready to pick fights and extract pain for bad nominations, um, as progressives did uh, under the Obama administration. And we have the ability to drive a lot of negative earned media towards Biden those first few weeks in office. Um, so I think that they they have a lot of incentive to come to the table and sort of talk through staffing. And then I do think that there are policy concessions. Um, I look to climate where there's more unity than ever around the sort of Inslee Warren timelines, a sort of very standards focused thinking, a very racial justice focused thinking in terms of thinking about pollutants and co-pollutants. You know, in New York, we actually passed a law that, um, Cuomo signed into law that had a sort of very aggressive emissions reduction timeline, but also had a co-pollutant. Reductions component to it, and also had most importantly a commitment to making it so that portions of the investments for climate were committed to low income communities, um, which are often communities of color, which sort of suffer the most from pollution and climate change. And I think that those are places where we can be united as a party. I think we can be united on pharma. We can be united on the need for paid family leave and, and expansive healthcare in this time of coronavirus. And we could be united on the need for automatic stabilizers. I think that. The sort of thing that progressives have to remember is that people who sort of come to politics with a sort of ideology first way of thinking are actually not a majority of the Democratic Party, right? The Democratic Party can be best understood as sort of a collection of the interests of African American groups, Latino groups, women groups, unions, and progressives. And of the groups, progressives are the only ones whose first priority is winning ideological policy gains. For African Americans, for women groups, for Latino groups, for unions, it's much more about sort of delivering concrete benefits to um, those constituent groups and delivering descriptive representation. And so progressives make up like one very important part of the Democratic Party. And we should expect to win, you know, roughly the number of battles that we represent. And I think that when progressives are going to win battles and when we're going to come with the most success, is gonna be when we sort of take our ideological priority, something like climate change, and we find a way of like, here's how we can work with the racial justice groups to commit to making sure climate investments go to low income communities. Here's how we can work with labor to make sure that those climate investments include strong labor provisions and sort of creating those sorts of group coalitions within the party. I think that that is where progressives are gonna have the most success. And I think that you have this view sometimes of, oh, I'm gonna take my ball and go home. But fundamentally, like this is a very big coalition that covers everything from black women who live in Mississippi to sort of college-educated urban white professionals, and that means that you're going to lose some battles, you're going to win some battles, but you can't think that every time you lose the battle, it's over, and every time you've won a battle, you've sort of vanquished the coalition maybe a member that was sort of in the opposite uh, opposite side of you. And just to to note, one of the reasons that I was sort of one of the most, you know, I've I've been canceled in various parts of the left for being sort of too much of a fan of ID Paul or identity politics. Uh, But I don't think of it that way. I think of it as descriptive representation, which is something that's very important to many key coalition groups in the Democratic Party. And I think it is very notable and should be taken note of that the most influential and successful progressives in Congress are women of color. You know, it is the AOCs and Presleys and Hollands of the world who I think show how progressives need to sort of center the importance of descriptive representation for many members of the Democratic Party coalition with those sort of desires for ideological and policy gains. And, you know, there was this sort of view that these ideas were somehow at odds. And that's been, I think, one of the most destructive views that has taken hold when fundamentally in order to sort of... Win our big ideological goals. We need to get the African American and Latino members of the party who are the most excited about universal health care to believe in, in our vision.
2: And we've talked a bit in this uh, conversation about theories of electability and how to get elected. Like, how does how much does field matter? How much does TV matter? Um, this has always been a debate about Biden, and a lot of Democratic voters chose him on the electability grounds, and then a lot of people who are skeptical of him are skeptical on those very same grounds. They worry that you know, his speeches don't get a lot of coverage, that he's not as aggressive a debater or sharp a debater as, say, a Warren. Like, Just what do you think about Biden as an electability candidate and a candidate in general? Do you feel confident about 2020, scared of it? Like, Where are you on that?
1: Sure. A couple thoughts here. On the primary, I think one really big mistake that the left and progressives made was not – I mean, I think people knew ahead of time this was going to be an electability election, but they sort of just knew that and didn't do anything about it. And I think that we needed to have worked much harder on making the case of progressive electability. And that would have started, by the way, before the 2020 election even started. It would have started, from my mind, in 2018 of sort of getting more Katie Porters elected into Congress that we could point to and say – Look, this is a this is an agenda that is a winning agenda and it's been tested. And in fact, many of the people who progressives were the most excited about ended up losing in twenty eighteen because I don't think we did enough work to ensure that we were thinking about our agenda as a persuasion agenda and a winning agenda. So in the primary I just think we really need to have narrowed in on that. And you know, I am still a believer in the the idea that, you know, Nate Cohen's New York Times piece, more anything else, um, Was the reason that Warren didn't win the presidential primary. But I mean, we should have known that that was going to come and sort of be thinking through how are we going to confront this electability question uh, when it comes to us. You know, I think there are lots of plausible arguments we could have made. Biden is more well known. uh, Undecided voters are going to sort of move towards Warren. But sadly, progressives sort of refuse to engage in that discourse entirely and refuse to sort of take a seat at that table and talk about electability and winning. On the question of Biden, I think that there are several things going in Biden's favor right now. I think the fact that we're in for a sustained coronavirus pandemic is going to make a lot of the things that he's been saying over the past several weeks look very, very bad in retrospect. I think that he had a lot of support from voters because of the economy. Uh, You had a lot of voters who disapproved of Trump personally, but approved of his handling on the economy. I think you're going to see that go down. Uh, But more importantly... Biden is benefiting from a much more united Democratic Party. I understand that people think that this primary was very brutal, but in the sort of history of primaries, the sort of runner-up endorsing the nominee this early and this full-throatedly is actually quite rare. And you know, Sanders has expressed a personal admiration for for Biden, which I think will make that process a little bit easier. The other thing is that Biden has a bit stronger favorable numbers than Clinton did at this time. I think we should absolutely have a conversation about how gender comes into it, but taking for a fact that he is more popular, he also is, is I think, going to have better earned media. The New York Times went into the election in 2016 believing that Clinton was the dominant favorite and covered her as though she was the presumptive president. and I think that led to a lot of errors in coverage the sort of autopsies of which Biden will benefit from immensely. That being said, Biden could make all of this easier on himself. um, And I hope he does by really working hard to bring progressives into the tent. You know, it was a surprise to me to learn that the Biden campaign hadn't talked to AOC. And I think that they should absolutely uh, be doing that, be doing that progressive outreach. I think the task forces are an important first step, but I don't want to see task forces. I want to see concrete policy, progressive policies be central to the campaign. And I want to see the sort of administration in the campaign be staffed by policy people who have sort of progressive minded instincts. And I think doing that will sort of create a base of unity that will sort of make it easier to win this election. But obviously it would be foolhardy to predict ahead of time who who, who's going to win.
2: And I think that's a good place to end. So let me ask you the question we always use to finish it off, which is what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience?
1: Oh, can I be super annoying? Yeah, always. (laughs) I think that there's a little bit too much sort of focus on the centrality of books in progressive discourse these days. And I think that one of the things that I've learned in politics is sort of the importance of relationships and the importance of sort of learning in real time. Um, politics and I think a thing that would make progressives a lot better is if we had sort of theories of the electorate that we were developing in real time. One thing that really benefited the more mainstream of the party um, and even the more moderates of the party was realizing quickly where the 2018 house gains were going to come from in targeting those districts. So what I would say that people should do is like definitely read books. but you know like interact with polling data you know, the American National Election Studies Survey, uh, Berkeley has allowed you to sort of create a crosstab generator, you can even run regressions with it, you know, have theories about the electorate, and test them and find ways to test them and sort of question yourself. One of the things that I, I get very frustrated about in politics is this idea that, you know, analyzing data, understanding data is something that you have to have a ton of experience to do. I Uh, eventually got a degree in data. But when I started in demos, I basically just taught myself uh, how to do it with sort of like Stata and R. And I think that when you start doing that, you sort of question your own assumptions. You start to like look at the survey questions and sort of play with them and run regressions. And it gives you a really intimate understanding of the American voting public in a way that is really important for progressives to know. And the last thing I want to say on this is, it's very important to understand history, but we also have to understand how the electorate is reshaping itself in real terms. But also you should read My Sense book.
2: What is My Sense book?
1: Deep Roots: How Slavery Still Shapes Southern Politics. Very good book, very good use of an instrumental variable to prove a really important point about American politics, and I think it if you sort of read that book and then you also are playing with the data it, it creates that very interesting tension of how sort of much, uh, many things in politics are set into sort of like stone and are sort of defined by history, um, but how much sort of like there are things that change and how much you you can shift public opinion and you can sort of win uh, definitive progressive victories.
2: Sean McElwey, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Sean McElwey, for being here. Thank you, of course, to all of you for being here. I hope you are staying safe out there. Thank you to Roshé Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing and editing The Ezra Klein Show as a Vox Media podcast production.